0: Firstly, the person who I thought I knew, I didn't know very well and I didn't really know the business partner very well and their ability to sort of let the business go and sell it was not necessarily what they wanted to do. It comes back to emotions again, emotionally. So even though I put some money in, they weren't prepared to really let me run the business
1: Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Today's episode is sponsored by the Valuation Masterclass, the complete, proven, step-by-step course to guide you from novice to valuation expert. Claim your 35% discount at myworstinvestmentever.com deals. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest, Nick
0: Bradley. Nick, are
1: you ready to rock?
0: Andrew, I am ready to rock, sir. Thank you for having me on your show. (laughs) Yes, I'm very, very
1: happy to have you on. And uh, listen up, folks, because I'm going to tell you a little bit about Nick and particularly listen to the last bit, which is just a little bit amazing. Nick Bradley is a business scale-up specialist helping entrepreneurs grow their business to create freedom, build wealth, achieve their mission, and live life more on their terms. He is the founder of The Fielding Group, a growth accelerator that helps companies improve business performance. And he works with private equity firms across the UK and the US, leading business turnarounds, mergers, acquisitions, and scale-ups. Over the last decade, he has bought, built, and sold multiple businesses, creating significant value for shareholders. Nick is also the host of the UK's number one business podcast on iTunes, Scale Up Your Business. Listen up, folks. I'll have the link in the show notes. His mission is to help bring entrepreneurial skill set and mindset to people all over the world as a driving force of progression and prosperity. Originally from Australia... Nick is a dedicated family man who has a strong background. This is the part that'll get you, folks. Mom, listen up. In physical fitness, having completed 67 marathons and 24 ultra marathons worldwide, he's also a qualified personal trainer and performance coach. My goodness. Nick, take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about uh, your life.
0: You know what? I don't know if I can fill anything else in on that, Andrew. When you read it, it sounds so much more impressive.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was just saying, I, 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 I'm a, I take a walk at the park. That's my exercise.
0: I'll comment on the last thing. Um, yes, yeah, you know, my ultra running days are far behind me. The knees are gone. But when I was doing that, just to give you a quick insight into it, I was doing that because it gave me a time to kind of you know get away for four hours on a Sunday from the young children and have a bit of time with myself and my dog literally running trails across the hinterlands and farmlands of the UK. And it gave me a lot of time to think and it gave me a lot of perspective. So as much as it was, sounds impressive to people, it was actually my time to have some space for myself to kind of work out what I was doing in my businesses and also what I do now in my life. So that was it. Really good fun.
1: Got it. And I, I wonder, I know that I can say my best ideas that I've had, it probably happened at the park when I'm out there walking early in the morning when I usually go. I'm curious if, if that's, you know, when you were out there running, did that spark your creativity or...
0: Yeah, it did two things, Andrew. I, I was, when I was doing that sort of intense running, and it literally was a marathon every Sunday, I kid you not, getting up at 4 a.m. and making sure that I'd, I'd run for sort of three or four hours before the family woke up, I was going through quite a lot of transition in terms of my business life. So actually, I'm going to go through that in a minute when we we'll talk about my story, and, and it kind of leads into my worst investment. But I also found that having that time, to your point, gave me a sense of balance, a sense of freedom, I came up with the stuff I'm doing now, I created, the vision for my life that I do now, I created through that running. So I, I, as much as I don't do it anymore, I still do similar things now, which give me the space to think and give me the space to to kind of build and create You know, the future that I want to live.
1: Fantastic. I always tell students evaluation that I've taught over the years that your best ideas happen away from your computer. So and that validates
0: right. it. <laughs> it does, right. it does. Maybe not as extreme as four hours running, but it, it certainly does.
1: Exactly. <laughs> now it's time to share your worst investment ever, and since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it, and then tell us your story.
0: Yeah, cool. Listen, more than happy to share it. Just to sort of reiterate, I think it's a great question, because you're right, people don't like to talk about it, but for me, for me, I'm happy to share the story, because it actually sparked a lot of what I'm doing now. So to give you the background, my career before what I do now, which is, you know, obviously helping entrepreneurs scale their business and making my own investments. And I spent a good 15 years working for some of the largest companies in the world, mainly in the media game. And I was pretty gung ho in terms of trying to get to the top of my field, my profession as quickly as possible. And where that came from, if I go back even further, was I went when I was growing up, I had really reasonably challenging childhood, sort of multiple sort of family issues and things that people go through, and I had to reinvent myself a couple of different times growing up. but what that sort of taught me was that every time there was something put in front of me, a challenge uh, an opportunity, I would just go at it and I did that to sort of prove a little bit to myself that I could achieve things, a little bit to sort of prove that I could have some significance, and as a result of that, I was focused too much, I think on achievement and not really focused that much on fulfillment and for people listening to this, particularly people who are very driven by the badges of success and you know the idea of status and money and and all those things which have their place don't get me wrong but. If you're 100% driven by that and all of your energy comes from what other people think of you all the time, or your ability to prove that you're more than, than what you perhaps think you are, then once you get to those places, once you get to those levels of success and you get to those levels of achievement, you kind of realize that there needs to be something more. Well, certainly, it was the case with me. So, strong corporate career. I grew up in Australia. I liked your pronunciation of that, Andrew. <laughs> Perfect. And as I said before, my family upbringing was one of, you know, not a very wealthy family, very poor with money. My education around certainly investment or anything to do with wealth creation was was non-existent. Came from an upbringing where people would just buy things all the time. You know, lots of debt, huge amounts of debt in our family. And as a result of that, lots of troubling times, lots of fighting, lots of lots of, I suppose, negative associations with money. So I don't know how I did this, but I decided that I needed to leave that environment. So I started a small business, a personal training gym, back when I was about 18 years of age. And it was going pretty well, actually. And I didn't really think about entrepreneurship or anything like that at that point in time. I just liked going to the gym and exercising, so I thought I'd start a gym and personal training back in the late 80s was was something that you know hadn't been heard of at that point in time so in some cases I was innovating but I had to get out of my environment so I sold that business to a mate of mine for a little bit of cash packed up all my belongings left little town of adelaide south australia and ended up in sydney with about a month's worth of cash and you know a bit of a couple of people to call up in my network a whole heap of drive and I managed to meet a person called Matthew Hambury, which was Rupert Murdoch's nephew. Now for those people who well, most people know who Rupert Murdoch is certainly one of the biggest media people in the world. He owns a, a business called News Corp. I managed to sort of blag a job as marketing manager of men's health magazine the day before I'd have to pack my bags to go back to Adelaide because I had no cash. <laughs> it was one of those weird serendipitous moments. <laughs> and, the reason I sort of start there to kind of get to my worst investment is that took me on a pathway in a corporate career, which I started to earn some good money for the first time. I was making a bit of money out of my business, but nothing like what I was earning in the corporate world. I started to see, you know, different experiences and different associations when you're in that world. And I just went for it to try and get to the highest level I possibly could within those organizations as quickly as possible. And that then drove me to, So essentially being a board director of a FTSE 250 company here in the UK before I was 30. So I, I left Sydney, moved to the UK, got transferred over there with one of the media companies I was working for, did everything I possibly could in that organization to the extent if I share this with people where, you know, I would, I would almost step on people to get to where I needed to get to. I wasn't at that point in time, you know, a very nice individual and I look back now and I'm a bit embarrassed to share that part of the story. Mm. But, it was just, you know, sometimes when, you're, when you have to prove things to other people and yourself, you just, you just do what you need to do. And anyway, kept doing that, got to a very high level, was running companies for private equity businesses by the age of 35. You know, we're going over a decade ago now. And making crazy money, you know, doing, you know traveling the world, seeing things. From the picture on the outside, everyone would have said that I was, you know, probably one of the most successful people. That they knew anyway, one night i i was I was quite stressed, I wasn't feeling great, I was probably taking some of that stress out on my family as well. you know, got married at that point in time, young young child, and one night, I remember going to bed and I had a whole heap of stuff going on with the business I was working in, and I literally woke up and I cracked all the back of my teeth on the right side so crazy, crazy experience. If you can imagine what that's like. How did that happen? Well, I went to sleep and I actually, I grind my teeth. I must've grind them right down to the point where the pressure of me clenching my jaw broke two of the teeth just on the back of my jawline. Oh my God. (laughs) I know. I know. And I, this is the epiphany, right? For me, right? This is everything. So I went to the dentist and the dentist said, you know, you've just broken your teeth because of stress you know, you've gone to bed with whatever you're thinking about at the time. And you know, I, what it was is, you know, we were doing a turnaround of a business at the time. It was going okay. I was getting a lot of pressure from the investors at the time. And even though I was the chief executive of that business, the one thing I learned is there's always someone above you. <laughs> it mm. doesn't matter. You think the CEO is the role. You know, when I was younger, I thought that's the role. I want to be a chief exec. And there was always someone else. And in the private equity land, which I do love that environment to some extent, you've got to manage it. It can be very aggressive and very assertive. So so anyway, so I did that, came back, and I thought, you know what, I've got to change this. I've got to change this. I can't do this anymore. I was not feeling fulfilled. I was not you know, the person I wanted to be. So I, I essentially spent some time, I went running, <laughs> <laughs> I went for a long run. That was a long day. And came back and said, I've got to get out of this. And so what I did is instead of working for the private equity firm, I decided to go and buy a business. And there was someone who I sort of knew by association who was trying to retire from their business. And they and their business partner essentially offered me to sort of buy into the business it's called a management buy-in, an MBI. And this is the worst investment. So you're ready for it, everyone. <laughs> 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 It because I was going, through,
1: we now understand exactly the mental state you are in.
0: Oh, yeah. And this is, this is the big thing. I think what I think I want to focus on for people today, and I said I've listened to some of your other interviews, Andrew, and, and mm-hmm. I don't think you've covered this one as much. It's been mm-hmm. touched on is that the worst time to make an investment decision is when it's based purely on your emotions. Right. And, you know, because you're not seeing the bigger picture and you're not being objective, you're making a decision. Maybe the right decision longer term, but you're not clear in your head around it. You've been far too heart-led in this perspective. So I was literally looking for something where I could jump ship. And the business, I look back now and again, I think, God, you know, from what I've done since this point in time to what I was doing then, is it's a totally different thing. But I made the decision because at the time I wanted to get out of what I was doing. I knew I needed to make a change. All of those were the right things. I looked at this business and I jumped in. I had to invest a six-figure sum of money to buy in. And the whole play was to essentially have some of the money invested in, but do a, what we call a, a seller or vendor financed agreement so that I'd be paying off the difference in, in what was invested into the business to the owners of that business over a three-year period. So there's two things there. I'm coming in essentially as an employee again, which is probably one of the things I wanted to avoid, even though I've got an ownership stake. And my ownership stake of that investment, if you like, is increasing over time as I'm paying back the equity or the sale price of the business. Mm. So what happened? Let Let me share with you what happened. So firstly, the person who I thought I knew, I didn't know very well. And I didn't really know the business partner very well and their ability to sort of let the business go and sell it was not necessarily what they wanted to do. It comes back to emotions again, emotionally. So even though I put some money in, they weren't prepared to really let me run the business and bring that I wanted to bring into it from my background of you know, private equity, turnarounds and scale ups. So very early on, within about three months of making this decision going in, there was a lot of fighting, heaps of fighting and disagreements. And it ended up becoming, I put a bit of cash in, as I said, but I slow played it. This is probably the best thing I did in this situation. I slow played some of the investment because I wanted to do a bit more of my due diligence. And my father used to say to me, you know, you only know how to play the game once you're on the pitch. Mm. And so in many cases being in the business, I could see things that I didn't see from the outside. And I still reflect back and think, you know, I still needed to get into the game. So even though, I could have done more at the beginning and I could have been more objective in the beginning. It was still the right play in some cases to get in there and understand it. And that's something that I do to this day with businesses that I invest in. So to take you forward in terms of what happened, So as I said, there's a lot of fighting. The paperwork was in process. I was in the business. I was running it as a sort of CEO MD. And one day at a board meeting, there was quite a large disagreement and the two owners decided to sack me. Wow.
1: Yeah. Right there and then?
0: Yep. Wow. Yep. Yeah. So talking about jumping into something without, you know, what is it? Jumping out of a plane without a parachute. (laughs) This was, so, so I'm sacked. I find out literally also that week that my wife is having our second child. Mm. I had a little bit of cash saved back, but I'd put a fair bit of money into this business already. They weren't prepared to give me that money back. Wow. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's a good one, isn't it? That hurts. You know, you can, hopefully, you can feel the pain here. And yeah. you know, the worst part of this story, right? The worst part of this story is, as I said, it was, it was literally, I was told around this timing. I can't remember. It was certainly when it was becoming difficult that we were having our second child. And I remember, instead of hugging my wife and going, wow, this is amazing, can't wait. I remember literally putting my hands in my face and, and I don't know if I cried or if I screamed, <laughs> but I remember mm. going, why now? Like, why is this happening now? And I remember seeing her face and she was like, we're having a, we're having a baby and you're listening. So anyway. Well, you're lucky you the- didn't lose that. No, no. That and, and you know, yeah. no, no. And, and she trusts me and she's been fantastic support, you know, for everything I've done. And, and she knew what I was going through at the time. And to finish the story on this, because, you know, it, it ends relatively abruptly and I can get into the lessons. So I, I, you know, I left. I had to go to court to try and get some cash back. I then had to work out what I was going to do in terms of an income because I was taking an income from this business as as part of the MBI, part of the management buy-in. So I had to literally hustle to get another job, which I did very quickly because I had a good network. So that was good, but there was still a a period of about sort of six to eight weeks of working out, you know, how the hell are we going to pay for things? We were dipping all into our savings. And then eventually I did take the guy's, to court for some various things that I found in the business, post-investing, which were illegal. And I managed to get some of that investment back. Not all of it. So it's still considered my worst investment ever. It's my worst investment ever for more reasons than the money. It's Mm -hmm. my worst investment ever for things that I was, you know, probably the decisions that I made to allow myself to be in that position.
1: It sounds like it was probably a bit of an emotional bottom.
0: Yeah, it was, I look at it now, I look at it now and I say, it's actually probably one of the best things that ever happened in my life mm. because what I've done since then and what I do now in my mission, my purpose, the clarity around what I'm, what I'm trying to achieve in my life, how I'm helping others, all of that stems from coming from a pretty you know, challenging place. And I left that and I said, I'm not going to make that mistake again. I'm not going to be stupid like that again. I'm going to be much clearer. I'm going to be more objective. And I've actually gone on and done multiple investments since then. You know, I buy, what I do now predominantly is I buy my own businesses, my own investments. I scale them up and I sell them. I help other entrepreneurs do the same things. Mm. And I wouldn't have got to doing that. I think certainly in the way had I not done, learned the lessons that I had learned from this investment, this first investment.
1: Mm. So let's go through the lessons. How would you, what would you uh, list them out as?
0: Yeah, there's three things, three things that jump out. I've talked around them, but just to be really clear for everyone listening today. Firstly, make decisions that are purely based on your emotions is is never, in my opinion, a good idea. Now that's not to say you shouldn't think about things from both that, I said, the heart and the head perspective. I think you need to connect with both. But if you're in a position where you're looking for a way out and you're looking for like a, a get rich quick scheme and and all that sort of stuff, and that's very emotion led, as I said previously, it prevents you from seeing the bigger picture and being objective. So the first lesson for me is if I'm feeling like an opportunity is presented to me, I'm very conscious and very intentional now to reflect on that, have some thinking time, maybe go for a run and say, okay, what is it about this that I'm feeling? Why am I emotionally drawn towards it? How can I be more objective now? And then I start to put more metrics around the thinking and trying to align it more with where I'm trying to go. And so these days I might have a pipeline of 20 to 30 investment deals at any one time, and I'm very clear to qualify in or qualify out because I'm putting more, as I said, objectivity around my, my thinking and decision process. So That's the first one. hmm Second one is similar, but before diving into any investment, you know, my view is you've, you've got to do your due diligence, you've got to do your homework. And, and we, we used to do that a lot in the private equity world, even, even then there are gaps. But for me, it's about looking for multiple insights and pieces of information. So you can make that truly informed decision. In the case of my, you know, my worst investment, I didn't seek enough information around it that had I have done a little bit of digging, not even that deep, I would have known that it wasn't a good investment from the outset. These guys, in hindsight, they had a reputation for doing things not necessarily the way that would fit with my values. And I only had to speak to a few other people in my network to have learned that. Mm -hmm. But I was blinkered to that. And again, it comes back to the emotions. I jumped in, but doing your homework, doing your due diligence is is something that I think is really important to, to counter the idea that you might be diving in based on that emotion. Yep. And number third three. One, yeah, number one, number three is one failure, no matter how hard it is at the time is never the end. And, you know, picking yourself up, going again, learning from the experience, growing and becoming better from it is, is what you need to do. And, and, and one thing I've taken from this is it's only a failure if you give up, you know, ultimately on what you're trying to achieve. And so for me, I learned a lot and then I I did, I picked myself up and I, and I turned this into, you know, a very, very successful business now in terms of what I do from this learning. So if anything, I had to go through this. I feel now to probably be as effective as I am in what I am now in my own business investments. Mm. So anyone who's had a failure, you've just got to, you've got to treat it as a learning experience and and realize it's hard, but you are going to grow from that and you are going to become better having gone from that experience, even though, you may not feel that at that point in time.
1: Yeah, a lot of things that I've written down a lot actually from this story, and um, but the thing you're saying about failure, I think, is such a critical thing because you said that you know failure is never the end. In fact, it's the beginning. Mm. Like yes. it is the origin of what you become. I think about a case in my case where I've was. i been fired from jobs in my life and each time I was fired, it seemed like the end of the world. And then amazingly, I rose to higher heights from what I learned, but at the moment, it definitely felt like it was the end of the world. I have a, a good friend where I grew up in Ohio that used to always say like, when I would tell him like, this is the worst thing that could happen. He says, how do you know it's not the best thing? (laughs)
0: I like your friends (laughs) yeah I was like
1: how dare you say that this is the worst thing you know and then he just kept saying that and then I started thinking yeah we don't really know you know that so
0: yeah that's a good point and just to build on what you said there you know you don't ever want to be a victim and 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 there's there's actually a psychological part to that which is you know if you're a victim you're not in the right state to be again back to me about to make the right decisions and so there's two things that I say now I've learned certainly over the last sort of 10 years is that firstly, everything in life that's happened to me, even if I go back to my family situation, which I didn't go into detail in today, there's more to that story. Everything served me, you know, it served me going through that corporate world and, and dry, you know, all the things that I achieved, they serve me in many ways. The second thing is, you know, your, your identity needs to shift and change all the way through your life. So I always say, you know, the person you are today is going to be shaped and formed by the different experiences, positive and negative that you go for. And that's your identity coming true. So to be be really congruent with yourself, you need to face these things because it's shaping you to be better, to become the best version of yourself. And no one has a life, no one successful has a life that's easy. It's what you do around those situations that happen to you that make all the difference.
1: Yep. And you remind me of this, the same guy that said that to me when we were young, he came to visit me in Bangkok a couple of years ago and we were just hanging out and talking and we were talking about drugs and we were talking about, and I was explaining to him that I was very much against the idea of locking people up for, you know, decades because of drugs. And he just looked at me with this bewildered look and he just said, what are you talking about? You know, when when we were young, you were this tough guy saying we got to have a strong war on drugs, lock everybody up. <laughs> He's like, he hadn't you know seen me or discussed that for a long, long time. And then what happened is that I looked at it and realized, yeah. As I learned more about life, you know, I changed my my opinion. And I think in the same way as you've talked about, you know, our identity shifts and our opinions shift. I've written down six things, so I'm going to run through them. A few of them are pretty quick, but the first thing I wrote down when I was listening to you talk was the idea of debt, and you mentioned about family debt, and I, I always say in business, debt is really the number one risk factor in business because if something goes wrong, you can quickly lose control of the business. I would say you know there's other factors, but debt is such a major, major risk factor, whether that's personal or professional. The second point that I wrote down was I was thinking about Bob Dylan when he had that song, (laughs) You Gotta Serve Somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, you know, but you've got to serve somebody. And I think that, you know, you've explained that, that everybody has a boss. And even if you're the CEO, you still got to serve the shareholders and they can be the toughest. The third thing I wrote down was the idea of when I was young, we used to talk about the concept of a geographical cure where you could move somewhere and change your life. And what older folks said to me is they said, the only problem with that is you bring yourself with you. (laughs) And uh, so it made me think about this idea that when you're in emotional turmoil and you're making decisions, thinking that that decision is going to bring you to another place, unfortunately, you'll be bringing yourself with you. The other number four I wrote down was, I just wrote down the words, terms of the deal and how critical it is to make sure that you get the right terms in a deal and don't, you know, rush into something and bring those terms that you've got, you know, to other people to make sure that you've spotted, you know, things. The other thing you said is number five that I wrote down is when your emotions aren't right, you know, it just doesn't work. And I think that we all get out of balance. And I remember that, There was a part, a time in my business partner, in my coffee business life at Coffee Works, where the harder he worked, the worse it was. And he had to actually stop working so much and started playing jazz, drumming, which he was a drummer and he hadn't played for years. And he just, he had to get out of the work and out of himself. And as he said to me, when I'm drumming, you can't think about anything but drumming. And then the last thing that I wrote down was people, you know, most of the people listening to this podcast are professionals. There may be professional financial people, business people, they're professionals like you. And the problem is, is that oftentimes professionals, this is my opinion, it's not based upon any empirical research, but professionals are, in my opinion, the worst in the areas that they're expert in. So some of the brokers or the investors that I've talked to, they end up risking it all on some overconfident bet. And, you know, here you've described a little bit about, you know, feeling really confident in what you were doing and being very successful at what you're doing in private equity and then not doing the due diligence in your own deal. And so those are six things that I took out of your story.
0: Anything you'd add? No, listen, you've covered a lot there. I think you know. Just to talk about a couple very really quickly, the on the last one, you're right. I mean, I, my sort of professional skill set was marketing, and I can advise anyone on their marketing strategy. I, I can be very, very clear and see the the opportunities and the problems. But when you try and market stuff for yourself, sometimes I've struggled with that. And it's exactly the same. I think I think that's a, I think that's a common issue that people have. And I don't, I can't even think about why it is. I think it's sometimes it might come to the fact that you have more vested when it's yourself in the game. And mm-hmm. therefore that can cloud you. Sometimes it comes back to everything comes back to that emotional piece. We spoke about at the beginning of the call. Yep. And that's true. And, and on the, on the environment point that you made and bringing yourself with you, I fully agree with that. What, what I find is when you change your environment and change, change the circumstance around you, in some cases, I call it burning the boats or cutting the ties. You have to, it forces you to change. So when I moved to Sydney and then moved to London, then moved to New York, each time I did that, I, I was challenging myself to change, to evolve. I had to, I had no choice. And that's the thing. So when I first landed in Sydney with not much money and you know, lots of dreams and, and a few, few numbers to call up, that wasn't going to be enough. I had to then take action and do things around that. So your, your point's well made. For me, it was about if I'd kept myself in a comfortable position, if I hadn't challenged myself, I don't think I would have had the impetus to make the change more deliberately.
1: Great. So let's take this down to a, a person that's in the same type of situation. They're about to make this big decision Based upon what you've learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take
0: to avoid suffering the same fate? Go for a long run. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, no. There's a few things I do now. There's a few things I do now. If I'm feeling, if an opportunity is presented to me, I deliberately do not make a decision quickly. So in fact, in one of my, my recent podcast episodes, it's called slowing down to speed up. And it's one of your points as well. Mm. Is sometimes the best decisions are made on reflection. So the first thing I say is if you've got a big opportunity and even if someone's pressuring you, they want a decision in 24 hours, you know, you've got to be really strong to push back on that and give yourself the time. Give yourself an extra few days if you need it, whatever the time frame is, and really, you know, write down the reasons why this is a good investment, the reasons why it's not. What does it give you? What does it not? How does it take you to where you're trying to head in your life, in your business? How does it hold you back? Does it fit with your values? Does it fit with your standards? Is it going to give you what you really want and be very clear on that? And the reason I say, write it down. And I do this with everyone now, every, every investment I look at is it just forces you to stop. Mm. So that's the first point. And the second thing is speak to people. I have mentors. I have, you know, I've had coaches. I've got a really strong peer group of people, particularly in in the things that I'm focused on in my businesses, people are doing the same stuff. Surround yourself with people who are trying to do the same thing, or if you haven't got that because it's your first investment or whatever it is, people that you trust that can give you just that sounding board. So if you slow down, you reflect, you write it down, you look at all the pros and cons, and you seek opinion from people who can give you an honest, objective answer, you're going to be better informed, I personally feel, to make that decision, whether you go ahead with the investment or whether you don't.
1: Got it. All right. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months?
0: Oh, it's big. It's big. (laughs) So so I, as I said, I I buy and sell businesses. That's predominantly what I do now. My business partner and I, we have an objective to have no less than five acquisitions on the cards in the next 12 months. And enterprise value of that will be anywhere close to 15 to 20 million across those aligned businesses. That's what we're trying to do. Mm. Our vision for the next 10 years is to have over hundred million of invested assets in businesses that we own and we're scaling up and obviously exiting when we choose to. So okay. for me, it's all about value creation through businesses. Lots of people talk about real estate. They talk about other investments. For me, it's about buying businesses that are under leveraged, under optimized and, and being able to do some stuff with them. So that's my focus next 12 months, big one. Very excited by that.
1: Very clear. Very clear. All right. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Nick, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for our audience?
0: No, just to say, Andrew, it's been an absolute pleasure. And if I've managed to help anybody today, for that, you know, my story and everything like that. I'm very grateful to have served you. So thank you very much.
1: You're most welcome. And I want the audience to remember one last thing from Nick that I wrote down, which is challenge yourself to change. And that's a wrap on another great episode to help you create, grow, and most importantly, protect your wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.